Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, the First Lady claiming gender politics are playing out in the Senate race while her critics are crying nepotism. She says it's sexism. You've got to answer this back by showing I've got the experience to serve in the Senate, and, and I think that that's what she's got to do. Also, eliminating abortion costs. Governor Murphy urges lawmakers to pass new legislation ending out-of-pocket costs for all abortion procedures. People are really suffering in the state and um, throughout the country, and so we shouldn't be doing anything that's going to put more of a burden on individuals. Plus, the librarian at the center of the state's book ban battle is speaking out. I've never seen anything quite as vicious as what I'm going through now. Um, it turns my personal life upside down. And protecting the whales. New plans to protect endangered whales as offshore wind projects continue to heat up. We believe that we can recover North Atlantic right whales and support responsibly developed offshore wind, but it puts a burden on the federal government. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venosi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Tuesday night. I'm Brianna Venosi. First Lady Tammy Murphy is rolling in endorsements. Her campaign for U.S. Senate today racked up another 100 backers from the party organization, all from Bergen County, ranging from local mayors to county leaders and state officials. But don't accuse her of leveraging the power of the governor's office to gain those supporters. As senior political correspondent David Cruz reports, Murphy's camp claims she's the target of sexism within the Senate race, attacks she wouldn't face if she were a man. First Lady of New Jersey is not a constitutional office. You are the governor's spouse. But in the hands of Tammy Murphy, first ladies become almost a co-governorship, exactly what the Murphys intended from day one. Are you the quarterback of Team Murphy? Um, I think you probably could say that, but, but uh, you know, we all, we're pretty seamless, I would say. Phil and I have worked together as a team for a long time, but being the quarterback, that's kind of fun. I, I will tell the team that that's what I am going forward, yes. And she's kept her word with an office across the hall from the governor and environment education, and reproductive health among the issues in her portfolio. But when she declared for U.S. Senate, you started to hear whispers, some louder than others, about nepotism and questions about experience. The governor, from whose connections the first lady slash candidate is presumed by some to be benefiting, was asked about it on his monthly call-in show. I bet you if she were well. my husband, it would be a different story. The First Lady adding a few days later that she might be more acceptable to some if her name was Tommy Murphy. Now the campaign is fundraising on the theme. Nearly everywhere she goes, it says in an email appeal, Tammy's held to a higher standard and faces tougher questions than most men. But it's not quite that simple, says Jean Sinzak of the Center for American Women in Politics. Yes, to the idea of a gender double standard at play, she says, but also, yes, to, like, your husband's the most powerful Democrat 
in the state. It's much more common to to use the words unqualified when talking about women candidates than than you know male candidates, even if they have the same amount of qualifications, even if she's more qualified than the men in the race. It's just so that's real. Um, so I don't want to discount that, right? Like that's a real thing. Then this particular situation is so unique. And so this is much more about the party line and the problem with the system than it is about her gender. Biases are still everywhere in politics, says Glenrock Mayor Christine Morieco, who just endorsed Murphy. A lot of it has to do with knowing what it's like to experience the subtle and the not-so-subtle. Like people always asking what her husband thinks about her running for mayor. And that's only funnier after, you know, we've been introduced into a room of new people and they say, oh, the mayor of Glenrock is here. And someone will inevitably walk up to my husband and go to shake his hand. There's another woman in this race now and a black man and for that matter, an Asian guy. So the rich white woman is not going to get a lot of sympathy for long, according to some. We have had senators before who have come from outside the political realm, who have not had political experience. You had Bill Bradley, who was a basketball player, right? You had Frank Lautenberg, who was from the business world. The onus was on them, and they were men, and the onus was on them to demonstrate that they had um, the competence to serve in the Senate. That's how she's got to ultimately answer this, not with, you're being unfair, not with, you're picking on me, not with, you know, I I'm a woman. You've got to answer this back by showing I've got the experience to serve in the Senate. And if that fails, there's always the county machines, big donors, and high-profile family members to fall back on. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. The field of U.S. Senate candidates David mentioned got a little more crowded this week after Cape May businessman and real estate developer Curtis Bashaw announced he's launching a campaign for the GOP nomination, becoming the second major Republican to formally enter the race. Bashaw is probably best known as the guy who restored historic Congress Hall and the Virginia Hotel in Cape May. The 63-year-old Camden County native served as the executive director of the Casino Reinvestment Development Authority under Governor Jim McGreevy. He joins Mendham Township Mayor Christine Serrano-Glasner and at least two other candidates vying for the GOP nomination. Bashaw would be the state's first openly gay U.S. senator if he wins, and he joins me now. Curtis Bashaw, welcome uh, to the show. So you've had uh, some great success in terms of your real estate endeavors as a businessman. Why now enter the field of the rough and tumble world of New Jersey politics? Well, that's a great question, Brianna, and thanks for having me on. You know, I think the people of New Jersey deserve better. I I'm definitely a political outsider uh, with a business mind. I've been blessed with the opportunity to have grown a business over 35 years in our state. And when I look at the dysfunction in our government, especially our Congress, uh, if I had a department that's dysfunctional or unproductive, I would sort of take it apart and put it back together. Our country was founded on principles of self-governance. And for someone like me in the later stage of his career, 
I just feel a responsibility to step up and be counted. It's interesting because you echo what I recall hearing from a Republican presidential candidate, former president, as a political outsider, a businessman who will go in, tackle the problems, and change them as you would a business. Where do you stand? Where do you see yourself on the political spectrum? You worked uh, under Governor McGreevy. You call yourself a moderate. Uh, you did not support President Trump. Uh, but in your campaign announcement, uh, you made it clear that Senator Mike Testa, who is chairing your campaign, was the co-chairman for Trump's campaign in 2020 in New Jersey. I think we've been trying to label each other as citizens for too long now. And these labels aren't fair. They're not accurate. And none of us are one size fits all. I'm Curtis Bashaw. I've always been me. I'm a business person. I'm a lifelong Republican. I'm a conservative. I, 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 I have lots of opinions about things, but I don't believe that it's useful to be constantly dealing in labels. Where do you stand, though, within the party? You say you're a conservative. Um, as far as uh, looking at presidential candidates, other candidates, uh, would you support President Trump if he were to go on to be the nominee for 2024? I'm running as a Republican, and I'm going to support our ticket. There's a primary. It looks like he's going to be the nominee. It's not quite finished. But I'm going to be very focused on our Senate race and working hard for all the people of New Jersey. Let me bring it back home then. Um, in your campaign video, you made some made it known really where you stand uh, as far as border and immigration. Where do you see yourself differing on the person who currently holds the seat, Senator Menendez, who's been a prominent voice on immigration? How does your stance differ from his? Well, I think, look, our border is a humanitarian travesty right now. It's a security threat to the country. Um, and I think we have to enforce the laws that we have. You know, as a business person in hospitality, I have employed hundreds of first-generation Americans over the years. We're a country of immigrants. So I believe strongly that we need a legal, safe, and robust immigration program. But I think that what's happening in the border right now is a disaster. How do you square yourself against a uh, fellow Republican you made mention, Christine Serrano-Glasner? She has already tossed her hat in the ring. She is a mayor. As someone who does not have political experience, why not start at a more local level, sort of get your bearings that way before jumping to a statewide office? Well, that's a, a great question. You know, running a business for 35 years gives you a lot of experience. But I did, did do two services in, in, in public service. One was running the Casino Reinvestment Development Authority for two years, got to know the inside of New Jersey politics, reinvest in casino gaming taxes and economic development all over our state. I also was on the board of Stockton University. So for me, it is a natural step as a citizen, as an outsider to get involved now when we have folks like Menendez who have embarrassed us with their corruption. Curtis Bashaw is running for the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate. Curtis, looking forward to following your campaign. Thanks, Brianna, very much. The U.S. Supreme Court will once again tackle the topic of abortion, 
Oral arguments in the abortion pill access case are scheduled for March 26th. The decision could put limits on the prescription drug mifepristone, which is used for both abortions and miscarriage care. The pill was originally approved more than 20 years ago and accounts for more than half of abortions in the U.S. when used in combination with a second drug. Progressives say they fear more abortion rights will be taken away in the future. And Governor Murphy, in his State of the State address earlier this month, laid out plans to boost New Jersey's status as a so-called abortion safe haven, calling on lawmakers to pass a bill that'll end out-of-pocket costs for the procedure. But who will foot the bill? Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports. People's health care shouldn't be determined by whether or not they can pay out of pocket. And I think that for any type of health care, um, people should have access to the care that they need for their health, for their lives, for their families. And regardless of why they need care or what kind of care they need, being able to cover it is equatable to being able to access it. Dr. Kristen Brandy is an abortion provider in New Jersey who's praising Governor Murphy's announcement during his State of the State address that his administration will work to remove all copays and personal costs associated with abortions provided in New Jersey beyond what insurance companies already cover. Many folks listening, myself included, right, we might have a $5,000 deductible that we have to hit before our coverage and our health insurance really starts to kick in and make things more affordable. So that's where this no cost sharing thing comes into play. Um, it is really for those who are most vulnerable. Dawn Erickson says having this coverage 12 years ago would have had a huge impact when she found out she was pregnant during a dark time in her life. I was in um, the throes of an opiate addiction. Um, which is one of the reasons why I chose to terminate. Um, I couldn't keep myself safe. I was lucky my partner paid for half, and then I had to find a support person for the other half. And it's a vulnerable place to be. It's a scary place to be. Years later, Erickson became a lawyer and submitted her abortion story in an amicus brief to the U.S. Supreme Court. She now volunteers to help support other women in need of abortions and has seen firsthand. Not everyone has a network and a support system that can either help with the cost or would be trustworthy and safe. There is um, a number of people who seek abortions because they're in abusive relationships or because of other safety concerns. Starting last January, the state requires that all health insurance benefits plans must include abortion coverage. New Jersey is one of 10 other states with such requirements, but the only one that still allows for co-pays. What New Jersey is doing is actually looking to many peer states um, who have already done these things. So Maine actually uh, just earlier this month, the beginning of January, um, actually began to do this already. So no out-of-pocket cost. Uh, no deductibles. Abortion access advocates say it would remove barriers for the most economically disadvantaged, but opponents say it could leave the rest of us picking up the cost. Marie Tazy from New Jersey Right to Life worries. It will cause premiums to go up for employers and employees. Um, and also New Jersey is welcoming people from other states. There's a big question on whether we'd be paying for abortions from people from out of state as well. We reached out to several Republican legislators for comment, but received none. Tacey says the costs shouldn't fall on already overburdened taxpayers. People are really suffering in the state and um, throughout the country. And so we shouldn't be doing anything that's going to put more of a burden on individuals. There are a, num you know, a number of abortion funds that um, we're aware of uh, that abortion groups have actually 
um, created to pay for people's abortions who can't afford them, and they are flush with cash. No legislation has been drafted yet, but Tacey says if the state wants to fully fund maternal health care as they claim, they should remove co-pays for labor and delivery. I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. As the rhetoric around book bans heats up again in the state, lawmakers are trying to rein in the harassment and vitriol that's come with it. State Senators Andrew Zwicker and Teresa Ruiz are proposing a bill to set guidelines around when and how books can be challenged, along with protections for librarians who've been the target of lawsuits, hate, and even violence. Martha Hickson knows that all too well. She's been on the front lines of the battle as the librarian at North Hunterdon Voorhees Regional School District. Hickson fought multiple attempts to ban books from the high school library and paid the price. She was subjected to threats, hate mail, and efforts to remove her from her job. Now Hickson fears a repeat after a November Board of Ed meeting turned contentious when parents spoke out about a graphic novel currently sitting on library shelves. It's called Let's Talk About It, The Teen's Guide to Sex, Relationships, and Being Human. Book banning is on the docket for the district's board meeting tonight, and Martha Hickson recently joined me to share how this fight has affected her life. Martha Hickson, it's so good uh, to get a chance to talk to you. I, I wonder first what your reaction was just to the outpouring of the public support, so much so that we now have to uh, follow, of course, this, this next meeting that was rescheduled because of it. Um, it was overwhelming, to say the least, but not surprising. We have been dealing with the issue of attacks on books and attacks on me as the librarian since 2021. And we had similar enthusiasm for the right to read and for support for the librarian at that time. There have been, of course, other books that have been called into question. Obviously, this has spurred conversations nationally um, because while the incident um, that you have faced has, has caused a, a lot of, I'll say, threats and, and other repercussions for your personal life, um, this is playing out really everywhere. How has that affected how you're approaching this and how you are continuing to fight um, for some of these books to be allowed, not just in libraries, but other public spaces? Well, first I'd like to take exception with the premise of the question that it's sparking conversations, if only. That's what should be happening is a conversation when parents have a concern about a book. Uh, address it at the school building level with the classroom teacher, the librarian, uh, or even the principal. But instead, what we're seeing is these uh, outbursts at board meetings and then these personal attacks on librarians. Um, in terms of what I'm doing, uh, through the unfortunate experiences I've had over the last couple of years, I've learned quite a bit about how to uh, reach out to my community, build a network, uh, use the infrastructure, infrastructure of the library community and also the First Amendment community to uh, get protections for students, for our library, and even for myself. How has it changed, Martha, how you're going about your job? on a daily basis, and also just your personal life? Um, in terms of how I'm going about my job, it's that's pretty much the same. You know, uh, librarians are by their very nature rule followers, so I've always uh, conformed to the policies for selecting library materials, and I continue to read reviews and choose the very best materials for our students and that, you know, my budget will allow. In terms of my personal life, uh, when these things erupt, and I 
can honestly say I've never seen anything quite as vicious as what I'm going through now. Um, it turns my personal life upside down. Uh, my work out, my life outside of work is now devoted solely to this, uh, solely to marshalling resources, to uh, gaining support, uh, and uh, to protecting the right to read and also my personal safety. Martha Hickson is a library at the North 100 and Voorhees Regional School District who has uh, faced a rash of scrutiny uh, over particular books. Martha, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for your interest. In our Spotlight on Business report tonight, an about-face from Governor Murphy on raising tolls. Murphy today saying he will approve the New Jersey Turnpike Authority's new budget that includes a 3% increase on tolls on the Turnpike and Parkway. It comes just three months after the governor vetoed the same toll increase when Democrats raised concerns about announcing higher tolls ahead of the 2023 legislative elections. At the time, Murphy said he wasn't satisfied with the justification for the hikes. Today, a spokesperson for the governor said he changed his position after more careful consideration and noted the increases will help fund New Jersey Transit, which receives hundreds of millions of dollars in turnpike revenue each year. New Jersey Transit, of course, just announced a plan for a 15% fare hike across the board, which could go into effect as soon as this summer. According to a state spokesman, the new toll rates go into effect on March 1st. On Wall Street, the stock rally took a breather today. Here's how the markets closed. tonight, there's yet another example that endangered whales and offshore wind can coexist if development is done cautiously and correctly. Experts at two federal agencies are looking at ways to protect North Atlantic right whales, which pass through New Jersey waters in the same areas being eyed by the offshore wind industry. A senior correspondent, Brenda Flanagan, reports they'll only have one chance to get it right. It's calving season for critically endangered North Atlantic right whales with moms and babies swimming along the East Coast between Virginia and New Jersey. That puts them smack in the zone dotted by planned and operating offshore wind projects and crisscrossed by ships. It's a fraught intersection, but one Oceana's Gib Brogan thinks is manageable with a new federal strategy. We believe that we can recover North Atlantic right whales and support responsibly developed offshore wind but it puts a burden on the federal government to make sure that that balance happens. Marine mammal advocates like Brogan welcomed a final joint federal strategy to save the whales and develop offshore wind where the two might collide. It stresses teamwork, research, strict monitoring and mitigation. That includes avoiding leasing in areas where major impacts to North Atlantic right whales may occur, establishing noise limits during construction, and providing guidance to developers on conducting robust sound field verification for certain activities to ensure that expected impacts from offshore wind are not being exceeded. Well, that's good as far as it goes, experts warn. The one place the strategy document falls short is in specifics and requirements for the projects going forward. This leaves a fair amount of interpretation 
for future actions. And so it's still going to be really important um, to track how BOEM and NOAA are actually implementing regulations because this is just a strategy. It is not a regulation, and that's important. Opponents claim offshore wind projects kill whales, but necropsies reveal most die from big ship strikes and fishing gear entanglement. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration cites studies showing climate change and warming ocean waters have driven whales closer to shore following their food sources into busy shipping lanes. They started showing up in new areas and protections were not in place in those new areas. And we saw just um, really a staggering number of deaths of right whales. It's why federal regulators want to enact more restraints on ships that break speed limits in areas where whales congregate. Congressman Frank Pallone's pushed NOAA and the Coast Guard to ramp up speed enforcement. He's still awaiting a reply. Meanwhile, he's encouraged by this new strategy. They basically acknowledge that you can do all of this, that you can save endangered species at the same time that you reduce uh, climate change um, and and build uh, renewable resources that uh, you know can can power residences and businesses without uh, burning fossil fuels. Meanwhile, Jersey's moving fast to meet clean energy standards. The Board of Public Utilities just awarded two new offshore wind projects to be located at least 40 miles off the coastline, and it's got more projects to award to qualifying bidders. They all have to comply with the Endangered Species and Marine Mammal Protection Acts. So those are really the teeth and those are really the things with which the developers will continue to comply. Uh, and this document is an opportunity for, you know, an additional layer of collaboration from the agencies. The new strategy takes effect immediately. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. And that does it for us tonight. But don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you right back here tomorrow night. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Have some water. Look at these kids. What do you see? I see myself. I became an ESL teacher to give my students what I wanted when I came to this country. The opportunity to learn, to dream, to achieve, a chance to belong and to be an American. My name is Julia Toriani Crompton and I'm proud to be an NJEA member.